Hi, I'm Siobhan Fletcher. Welcome to this instalment of Island Life. Visit Isle of Man has extended the visitor season into the winter this year in the hopes it will capture a share of the increasing demand for off-peak UK short breaks. So, what can people do if they come over to the island this time of year? I took a look at some of the activities on offer with Manx National Heritage. One offering is a tour of the island's ancient capital, which meets at Castle Russian and takes in the Old Grammar School and the Old House of Keys before finishing at the Nautical Museum. I went along to take in the sights. This was a school until 1930. No, not I think about 40 pupils there or thereabouts. And it does get very windy, guys. I mean, even today you can feel it because of the wind direction. It's very cold in here. The 50, yes, yeah, 50s, the slate song okay. on the roof, roof, yeah, yeah, and we've had odds and sods, and we've had to sort of put that plinth up there yeah. a few years ago, that was, because it had collapsed, but you can see this window because of the, the wind, it does get, but we're still, it's still standing. And the white paint was done by, the Sea Scouts used to use this as their meeting hall in the 60s, 70s possibly and they painted it white. They thought they were doing right, but of course, nowadays we know we shouldn't just be using all ordinary emulsion paint because it's limestone, it needs yeah. to breathe. Yeah, we know that now. And we've just had it painted again, but our architect has used specialist mineral paints so it can breathe. Mm. This is like plastic layer, really, almost. Mm. Mm. But I'm not going to be the one scraping that off. I can tell you what a job that would be. <laughs> the arch is quite interesting, actually, because there's a similar arch at Russian Abbey built in the same way, and there is talk about the connection period of time. Okay. It's sandstone, but they think the sandstone is from St. Bees in Cumbria, because St. Bees was the mother church to Russian Abbey. Although we have red sandstone in Peel, even the red stuff over there, they think it's probably from some bees and company. Okay. So somehow they, it's just imagining them trying to carry blocks mm. like that across mm. on mm. wooden ships. You know, it's amazing, isn't it? Yeah, well, the limestone's down that part of the island. It's yeah. all local, but even so, look at it, you know, you see the castle blocks mm. without mechanical means. It's amazing, isn't it? Mm. Amazing. Right, yes, should yeah, we move on? Did. We'll go to the House of Keys. Well, welcome to the old House of Keys, everybody. Well, this is, it's one room. The upstairs hasn't been renovated back in millennium year, but the ground floor certainly was. And it was put back to its original appearance, how it looked in 1866. This room does look, if the politicians came back in time, they'd recognise the room. Possibly there was only one portrait in here, that of the island's governor, a very well-liked governor, Colonel Cornelius Smelt. Now, um, he's an interesting character. He's ex-British military, fought in the campaigns in the Revolutionary War of American independence, 1776, an infantry officer leading his troops from the front, a uh, very brave man, no doubt, and it's said under difficult circumstances in the island, he, he had brave resolve and stood up to the Duke of Athol, who tried to bully him out of his house, the governor's house, in Castle, Russian Castle. 
and he wouldn't go. He told the, he told the absentee Lord Murray what he thought about the idea of being moved out. Very well liked by the Manx public. He was a benefactor to the island schools, as primitive as they were back in his time, post-Napoleonic era. Uh, liberal by nature, which was a good counterweight to the very aristocratic and autocratic Murray family, who were the absentee landlords from Blair Athol. And I understand, the story goes, that he was ordered over to the island by the King George III, who said, you'll go and you'll stamp out the smuggling on the Isle of Man, the running trade, as it's called. And he said, sir, but I'm an elderly gentleman and I've served my country well and the King and I fought for my country. He said, you'll go and do it. He said, oh, very well. So he came here and he didn't really achieve very much in stamping out the smuggling. I think a previous governor would was uh, much more effective at that and he virtually stamped it out but Cornelius didn't want to rock the boat. He should be on top of the Doric column in the Castletown Market Square. The committee ran out of money. So they built the beautiful Doric column and there was supposed to be an over-life-sized version of that gentleman and it never happened. Anyway, there's our governor and he's in the background. I think he was a very nice gentleman by all accounts. Who else have we got? Well, we've got a portrait of Edward Moore Gorn, and those are the Gorns from Kentraw. The mansion still exists today. It overlooks Gansey Bay and the Shore Hotel. And he sat there, and he, uh, as chairman or Mr. Speaker, and he controls the meetings we have here when we reenact uh, the struggle for democracy here in the real old. Parliament House in the ancient capital, Castletown. I again welcome to the old House of Kings, the house of the political representatives of this island since fighting times, and part of the oldest continuous Parliament in the world. I am Edward Moore Gorn, Speaker of this House from 1854 to 1867, and a member of the House of Keys since 1829. Now, Edward represents a period in time when politicians, uh, there was no democracy here, and they were unofficially selected by the Castletown clique, as they were disparagingly known. They weren't all from Castletown, but they met here in the ancient capital, and really they kept politics in the same Manx political families. So Edward's name would have been put forward to the governor of the island, along with a another. And in private, the governor would be prompted, make sure you choose Edward, but don't make it obvious. So no democracy whatsoever, and he's there for life. He joined his uncle, Thomas Gorn, who represented the Sheeding, wherein at the moment, Russian. And the only thing that got rid of Edward was democracy. He couldn't stomach it, and when it came in, finally in that year I mentioned, 1866, he had enough and he resigned. And the English uh, government, Westminster, offered him a, a knighthood. He could be Sir Edward Morgan. If he relented and stood for election, he wouldn't have any of it. The good days were over. The oligarchy was finished. So the struggle for democracy really is the thread that runs through the beginning of the eight motions on the agenda paper. Number four is a potential move to Douglas because, yes, they left this property 
1874, property hadn't been looked after. There were stories of the wallpaper peeling off the walls due to the damp. But they had problems with the Victorian sanitation. They never looked after the cesspit toilet in the corridor behind that door. And the whole thing collapsed into the foundations earlier in uh, 1840. So I can imagine as the great stink in London and Parliament and all that story goes on, here would have been similar, the place would have stunk. But they had other fish to fry in moving to Douglas. They were following the money, chasing the money, because a little fishing village in Douglas was morphing rapidly into Boomtown, into the seaside holiday resort that we all anticipated was in the Victorian age. I hear there were plans for some of the politicians to invest in whole streets of hotels, buy them up as a good investment. So they followed the money they left here in 1874. And interestingly, the politician that acted, sat in the corner and acted as a very authoritarian private secretary to the parliament and politician, George Dumbell, demanded this building as his first bank branch. I want this building... Uh, it'll become Dumbbell's Bank, and it did. And thereafter, it became a number of other banks. Number five on the agenda paper is the election bill. This is interesting. We talk about democracy, or the lack of it in the Isle of Man, and the Great Reform Act of 1832 in England brought democracy in, as sort of we'd recognise it today in England and Wales. And interestingly, as that gave men who owned a certain amount of property, the franchise, it took away the right of women who had powers to vote maybe their local councillors in. So an act that was being very progressive from the male perspective took away, I understand, all those rights for the ladies who could vote their local councillors in and mayor and whatever. So that brings us on to number five, the election bill, because we are the first country in the world to give women the vote, to vote their politicians in in national elections. And that question was mooted in 1880. Within a year, 700 Manx ladies got the franchise. It's all about property ownership. My understanding is that a, a lady would have to own four Victorian pounds worth of property rateable value annually in order to qualify for the franchise. Uh, for a man, it was double that. And even Lydia Becker, a Manchester suffragette, who's generally known as the most elegant and powerful and forceful woman orator of her moment in British history, wasn't in favour of universal female suffrage which I find quite remarkable. The only logical way I can think about it is, it was a step too far to give all women the vote in this very paternal society, Victorian society. You had to make it palatable, so one step at a time. And she had, an, uh, she had a few assistants. One was Emmeline Pankhurst. And as Michael Caine would say, not a lot of people know this, but her mother was Manx. She's born in the Isle of Man, She's raised here, I believe, for the first several years of her life. And her mother, uh, Sophia Gordon, from uh, near Lonnon, her mother really, to my mind, is one of the first feminists on the island. She told Emmeline that given an education, she could be as good as any of her brothers in life. 
and she made sure from an early age that Emmeline learned to read. What did she do? She read the political news to her father, an aspiring politician. So Emmeline Pankhurst, the daughter of a, a Manx mother. Number six on the agenda, well, we have road racing, motor car racing coming in with the Gordon Bennett-sponsored speed trials and car races starting in 1904. And this has a real family element to it because Lord Raglan, our English governor, a bit of a prickly character, ex-British military, he invented the Raglan sleeve, I believe. He had a very good idea here. Closed public roads for racing big seven-litre engined Bentleys and motor cars so our cars could catch up with the technology of the continental cars. The German, French and Italian cars were streets ahead of us. It brought a lot of tourists to the island. I believe 120,000 Edwardian tourists came every year to watch the motor car race in here. It generated an awful lot of interest and income in the island. Three years later, in 1907, we'll have the start of motorcycle racing here with the International Tourist Trophy races. A very successful motion by Lord Raglan passed and uh, it, it all came to start in 1904 with the cars. Two nephews of Lord Raglan were really the power behind this because I understand that a certain Julian Ord was secretary of the British Motor Car Racing Association and he was determined to get his uncle to start closing roads here and getting those car races started. And another nephew, the great Charlie Collier, who I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, won the first TT race in 1907, motorcycle race, he wanted it to happen too. So very much a family affair. Number seven on the agenda, which we discuss, the Ardman Tax, number two bill, 1960. The Manx politician really steering this is the late Mr. Clifford Irving. He was chairman of the Tax Commission in 1960 and a member of Timbald for representing West Douglas. A retailer, a shop retailer in Douglas, very well liked Mr. Irving and his wife, and he'd had something in mind to, to kickstart an uber-depressed Manx economy post-Second World War. And I would say it's very much like the mini-budget that's just been happening in England last week. The idea is to grow the economy by looking after wealthy entrepreneurs and uh, industrialists, and it worked. Now, I don't know what's gone wrong with a mini-budget across, but his motion, just over 60 years ago, worked beautifully well. We even ended up with the finance sector. Different times, but certainly the Manx economy was suffering. How bad was it? Well, Mr Irving, some other senior politicians, and Lord Garvey, our English governor, went across to plead, uh, I hope I'm getting this right, with the Harold Wilson government. We were wanting control of our own domestic taxation in a time when the art of man was sort of linked unofficially to all the English surtaxes and higher taxes. It happened. We were given authority to really control our own taxation and we never looked back. And number eight, the final motion on the agenda that we discuss here, is the European Union. I would call it a vote on Manx devolution because this is incredibly similar to what Nicola Sturgeon is hopeful 
of achieving for her nation, Scotland, the Isle of Man jumping into the European Union as its own little nation of 86,000 people. In order to do that, uh, our island would have to break with His Majesty's Privy Council, the Westminster Government, and we'd almost certainly have to adopt a currency other than the British pound. This was all debated for three years by top civil servants, economists and politicians, I believe, between 1997 and millennium year. Three years they sat down to wonder how they could achieve this. Also, they were looking at abrogation away from the UK Customs and Excise Agreement. We were going to go duty-free. I hear a rumour that the United States dollar was the currency of choice in order to jump into Europe. However, none of it came to pass. An ex-president of Tinwald, uh, Mr Noel Kringle, late departed, told me that it didn't quite get to Tinwald. So, an interesting point, but will it ever come to pass? I, I don't know. Those are the motions on the agenda. I'll point out, before I finish, a few other interesting characters in the portraits here. Well, we've spoken about a very nice gentleman, Colonel Cornelius Smelt. He didn't really stamp out anything smuggling-wise, but a very uh, good gentleman, very well liked by the Manx. Edward Morgorn, um, you've heard about him. Well, as I say, democracy finished him off. He, he wouldn't accept the knighthood. Uh, he took the carved chair instead. Um, we've Edward Farrant, the end portrait there. And uh, Edward's an interesting character because I don't believe he could make his mind about democracy. The story I hear is one minute, it's uh, no way, I'm, uh, I'll never accept democracy. It's, it's too much. And the next minute he's doing something that's never been heard of in politics, a U-turn. And I think when democracy became a fait accompli, uh, he decided it was the best thing since sliced bread. And he stood for election in the sheeting of air and he came top of the polls. And I wonder how that happened. And then I suddenly remember he gave generously to the poor houses and, um, and very generous giving to the poor. So... Uh, he put his money where his mouth was, and people remembered that. Um, behind you, we have Colonel Mark Wilkes. Now, he's an interesting character. And um, Colonel Mark Wilkes, he was uh, a British officer. He served out in India. Uh, he was part of the East India Company, and he bought his commission. He's possibly... Uh, he's possibly one of the officers who brought down uh, Tipu Sultan, a very powerful warlord there. And there's all sorts of stories about that. His biggest claim to fame was he was the prison guard uh, guarding the Emperor Napoleon Bonaparte when he became, when Colonel Wilkes became um, the governor of St. Helena, that little island in the Atlantic. And um, apparently Napoleon Bonaparte got on famously with him. He said he, he was totally bored and he said that this gentleman could make light of his life and make his life a lot more bearable. He, and he was very sad when um, he left the governorship of St. Helena. So it takes a lot to, to impress the Emperor Napoleon and Colonel Wilkes did it. 
He had a very beautiful daughter called Laura, who I believe a French officer fell madly in love with. Um, she was later to become Lady uh, Buchan, I think connected with the Buchan School. Um, but what can I say, even Napoleon was impressed with her beauty. So I'm just having a look at my notes here. Um, and what else can I say? Yes, he built the mansion at Kirby and Braddon. Um, he was originally intended for the church. Uh, however, that wasn't to be. He was the son of James Wilkes, the vicar general to Bishop Wilson. And uh, James Wilkes is an interesting bloke, his dad. He was trusted to translate the book of Joshua into the Manx language. Reverend Wilkes also minted cast coins at Castle Russian. And uh, those would be Manx pennies and half pennies. So um, his father was certainly a very interesting character. Um, Colonel Wilkes, well, what can I say? He went on to great military things out in India. Uh, he served as governor in St. Helena. And I'm waffling now. Let's see. Um, he suffered ill health. And I think that possibly that's a reason why uh, he returned to the Isle of Man. He was prolific in many languages. He could speak several languages, would you believe, including Manx Gaelic. So a highly intelligent man. He was thought of generally as a fair and just gentleman. That's Colonel Mark Wilkes. And we have over here a very uh, good man, uh, John Christian Kerwin. Now, he, ha he has the, the honour of being the Member of Parliament for Carlisle at the same time, in England, at the same time as being a Manx politician. He held uh, dual political control. He's um, a Whig politician. He's uh, an agricultural reformer, starts off very wealthy, and uh, he's bringing about um, upgrades in agriculture in a time when it was uh, very popular to do so. And unfortunately, this poor man died in poverty. He invested badly in coal mines, and due to re reduced profits from the coal mines, ended up dying a pauper. He was buried in an unmarked grave in Workington in Cumbria. So he started off an incredibly wealthy man and uh, ended up a pauper. He's a Whig politician and generally accepted to be the most capable English politician of his moment in English political history and possibly also Manx political history as well. Uh, he joined other politicians here to fight against uh, the domineering tactics of um, the, I think, the Murray family. There we go. So, I think it's time you all went over to the boathouse. Just, just in passing, just to mention two Manx heroes. Captain John Quilliam there, who played a pivotal role at the Battle of Trafalgar on Nelson's flagship, repaired the, the steering which was blown away. He was quite a few years as an MHK. He would have you know, served, performed in the room you've just been. Also, the bridge we're going to cross, and the nautical is more or less just the other side of this pedestrian bridge, is the Kane Bridge. You'll see the name actually after the litter bins in a moment. Mm. Colonel Robert Kane only Manx VC, Operation Market Garden, Arnhem, a bridge too far. 
the Allied advance into occupied Europe. Um, he actually lived for a while more or less next door to the Nautical Museum. So it, it's the major Cambridge, and also what I rather like, there's the main bridge over there, the traffic is going over, which is another major bridge, two major bridges in Castletown, Major Thirtle. But Quilliam, they moved that statue from the castle grounds a few years ago to this more prominent spot. But Cambridge, and we're just next to the big house there, Bridge House. So, welcome aboard then. Totally different here than the other sites. Tucked away over here, a bit of a backwater really. And the main story is about the Peggy, the boat, and the premises built in 1789. And it was the Quail family that actually got the, the buildings built along here. The end building that you've just passed is quite a mansion. It, you just look at the height of it when you go back over the bridge and it's quite a, a magnificent mansion in there. They actually opened up the first and only bank here on the Isle of Man in 1802, but what, who comes to the front of the, uh, the story is George Quayle, one of the sons of, of the family, and it was him that had the extension built that we're going to step through there. This was actually the coach room for the family, but through there, that was totally George's Somebody once said to me, his garden shed, but <laughs> forget about that expression. Nowadays, it's his man cave. <laughs> so, and when you get through there, you're going to see. The boat could, the peggy could come in underneath and it could be uh, moored, if you like, underneath. You're going to see all of that. I have to tell you now, the peggy has been taken off site for the last few years. She is ready to come back because what happens is if you touch, put your hands on the peggy, you are touching 1789 and there's nothing different. So there's been nothing replaced on it, nothing. But timber goes back to, the, to nature from the inside. If you put, the old fishermen put a flat knife to that and they would know inside. Nowadays there's all kinds of modern equipment and so they can do it. I, I imagine it like putting soundings through, electrical soundings. So something had to be done. It's been under a controlled atmosphere for the last six or seven years. She's ready to come back. But the thing is, of course, it's no good you'll see putting it where we're going to look just now. Underneath, there is a yard developed next door. And when that gets done, then she can come back. So this, that's the, the stumbling block now. There being the conservators, it's got it ready, but it's getting that yard done. Now to develop the yard and what you're going to see uh, when we go in next door, well, it's not going to be easy or cheap. The starting figure is five million pounds. She's on the same list, incidentally, as the Cutty Sark and the Victory, and I am told that she's only two ticks less than HMS Victory on a tick list. The first thing is this boat, when you touch it, original. All the boats have been rebuilt and there's replicas, you name them. But this vessel here, she's there with the big boys on the tick list. As far as the boat itself, I'll mention, I always emphasise at this point of the proud heritage we've got of our Celtic and Norse heritage roots. And so when it comes to the Peggy, of course, everybody has the image of a Viking longboat, Odin's Raven at Peel. Well, the point, first thing is that the planks overlap. So that's what was introduced here by the Norsemen. 
those planks are fastened together overlapping with iron nails they're square actually shapes so they won't revolve if they used a softer metal such as copper well the, sh the ship the boat works in a seaway so it's like a basket that would be leaking like a sieve so now if you ordered a boat a clinker built boat it would be exactly the same as that that they would do later boats the dinghies we used to have on the shore in douglas uh, that was copper but that's much 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 uh, less than these heavy things iron is another thing that's gone back to nature and you wouldn't think so when you look at it but it's inside they know now and they reckon they've got it checked that um, erosion or corrosion that's inside i always point out the sails on this is a fine model by the way of john gone from port st mary or near port portlamore the sails would have been made here on the Isle of Man at flex canvas and if I just mentioned later than this in the middle of the 1800s the sails for the Great Britain certainly the canvas was made here on the Isle of Man so you can imagine here the heritage that you've got a fine model here of it but where you are standing now any questions at that point what uh, was she used for excellent thank you yeah now George had the boat registered as a pleasure craft one notable thing is 1796, they go up to Windermere. It was actually a jolly for the other merchants. You, it, you've got to be aware that in the 1700s, it would amaze anybody the amount of uh, goods freight that was landed here by ships coming from abroad. Dutch East Indiamen, you name the whole lot, Caribbean stuff, all landed here because, of course, the customs duties was no comparison. In England, I think it's something like 70% to pay for the wars and rumours of wars with France. Here, well, a pittance. So the Duke of Athel in, that, in those days were making a nice £7,000 a year then on this, and everybody happy. Of course, that had to be taken across the water, as we say, at, at the dark of the moon in the small boats. Now, George Quayle wouldn't be involved, would he? He's got the bank next door here in yeah, over this time. And also he's a member of the House of Keys. Now to do that, you've got to be a landowner anyway in those days. And so George wouldn't be involved, would he? Well, until somebody tells me why the Peggy was arrested in Anglesey, Bomaris Anglesey, in 1793, well, I know what I think, and I think they all get a bit ahead of me. It's got to be mentioned, you see, that in 1765, well, the Crown was putting pressure, to say the least on it, or pressure on the island, and it was settled, where there's some agree, some don't, but it was settled in 1765. That what is known as the Revestment Act, and after that, the Crown then has the rights to the customs here, but income tax was later, and so... We, we're still free, we've still got a, a lot of autonomy here on the island, and that's one of them, so you're not getting that in a hurry. So yeah, so actually the Revestment Act was before this era here, but was the stuff in the old ways still getting landed here, etc. on the quiet? Well, 1793, the Peggy arrested, I'll leave that to you. The merchants who was in and into this, all wheeling and dealing with each other, they wouldn't be silly enough to be in a position to be caught. They were above the law, but the, any crew caught on board, and there was other schooners, etc., smacks running over to places like Whitehaven, any of the, the and a lot up to the Clyde. Well, it's known that the crews there had to answer for what they were doing, possibly even 
Shanghai, I would call it, but pressed into service in the Navy if they were caught, the Royal Navy in those days. So, yeah, I think that answers the question, what was she used for? She was a pleasure craft. <laughs> the, the way that George got the boat uh, uh, free in uh, Beaumalis, Anglesey, well, he paid a laissez-passe, it's French. It means let it pass. He's actually then got a passport, but it's for a pleasure boat. But I can imagine George going across the water waving his laissez-passe. Oh, it's only Georgie boy over for a jolly sail, and all the time he's flawed down in, in the bottom. Well, brandies and God knows what in the bottom. <laughs> He'd actually built the boat up a plank by then, a strake, because the, um, in 1790, they nearly lost the boat and the salt coming back. They did do well to get into the harbour here. So he built her up. So what you would notice that she could sit a bit lower with stuff in the bottom. Well, <laughs> you've got to let your mind decide up a lot. George, you're not going to be daft enough to leave anything in writing about this. The boat was uh, kept underneath here. And you'll notice that your John Gorn has made nice floorboards, flat bottom boards in the boat. And when the boat was here, and I've gone ahead of the story, discovered in the middle of the 20th century, after it had been locked down, I'll come back to this, for over a, a hundred years, nobody gave a thought that there was no board in the boat. But one day, a, a man walked in here, a Canadian, and he, so he goes through with the tour, and he said, by the way, haven't you ever wondered where the boards went to? Well, the tour guide on said, well, what do you expect after a hundred and odd years? Totally locked down. Oh no, he said, I was stationed here, attached to the RAF in the war as a radar operator, billeted next door, and he said, we were always freezing, and one day his mate and myself found his way in here and took the, the boards from the bottom. Yeah, burned them for firewood. The next day they were to go down and chop up the masts and anything else inside. They got suddenly word, lock up and leave, and they were gone. Now, when this comes back, I hope that, well, I've never even said that. You never announced that? No, yeah. I hope that they don't put bottom boards in because that's part of it. Serious history and heritage is that point in uh, well, the 1940s, early 1940s. So another uh, thing there that caught my eye. Now, normally, somebody asks, well, what happened? what's the cannons on it for? Oh, yes, she, she was on with another two stone chairs, as they call them. <laughs> now, they were serious days, and a French privateer, as they would call if a French, any French that could come into the Irish Sea at any time. And also, you wouldn't know who was out there at the best of times. There was no lighthouses, nothing. And so he's not taking any chances. There were incidents of boats going across where people from other ports across the water would come up and uh, be nasty to say the least. So George is not taking any chances. He's got the boat on. What I didn't mention when we were at the, the model was as time went on, when George died in 1835, this was totally locked in here. You can see now where uh, the boat was kept and it took all of that area mm. uh, there. And so here he would be touching it. But George, when he died in 1835, this was locked up totally. And so nobody ever came in. A hundred years later, when Miss Emily was asked, could the authorities come in to look at the legend? The word she said was, don't talk to me about Uncle George's place, boat, 
next door in, in, in there because even when I was a little girl I was not allowed to go in there and play and when you're going to see the cabin room upstairs and here that lady had never been in here out here was different I'll come to that in a moment but the boat was left in here that was 1951 before it was opened here as a museum we say that nobody had been in, but it was actually the, the 1935 when the authorities were allowed in, and then this was actually discovered then. But then it was closed up afterwards. The main buildings were sold off privately, and this in here, and what you've seen was left to the museum, the old carriage room. So I always imagine that of a couple of carpenters coming here from Manx National Heritage, or the museum as it was then, and, and exploring this and finding what we found. So here they were a few years ago, taking the boat out and they said, well, why not open this up, dig this up and to the slipway? Now, when they found out what's here, the two people that was here from Oxford University North, man and lady, they dug 160 tonne of what I'll call soil out of there <coughs> and the conditions was just horrendous. February, never stopped raining, no light, and tides in and out. Carolyn Rayner, the lady's name, was in here at 7 o'clock in the morning to start a pump, to, to pump it out, and I'm sure that lady sifted everything through her fingers. She wasn't going to miss anything. There's some things up in, in the upstairs here that is from that, vases, etc., and there's also some in storage in the museum. So no slipway they found this dock and there i know it looks rough now they've got to come back to it part in my opinion of the, the the development and you can start to see more so what uh, we've got here we are pretty good over here at bragging about we've got the oldest this and the you know the oldest parliament and the biggest wheel at laxey etc 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 but now this dock that they found here is the oldest private dock in europe repeat Europe to have been found now. I don't hear anybody arguing at any time and why they can't really. All the beautiful Venice, Holland, none of them has got a duck found as old as this was just discovered. Thanks again to Max National Heritage for that tour around Castletown, guided by Janice Quilliam, Stuart Quayle, Billy Stowell and Mark Watterson. That was only a little taste of each stop. If you want the full story, you'll have to book onto a tour. If you'd like to join one, they're available to book on to any Saturday or Wednesday until the 26th of November.